This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 7, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. If you read the title to this episode, then you know what it's about. 1979 Iranian Revolution. I know it's been a while, but it was very difficult doing the research on this, but I'll save most of my commentary for after the show's over for the outro section. So if you don't want to hear it, you can skip that part without losing anything from the story. Initially, just very quickly though, initially this was supposed to be just one episode, but eventually the research got dug up so much information, I just had to break it into two different episodes. So there'll be another episode coming out, inshallah, within a few weeks of this one. So show notes for this episode will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Iran1, for Iran episode one, Iran, I-R-A-N, and the number one. You can support the show with a donation or a uh, patronage at patreon.com slash Islamic history. And with that, we're going to go ahead and get into the show. So here we go with Islamic history podcast, season four, episode seven, the Shah and the Ayatollah. What do you call authority to enforce the law? To make such fantastic, drastic changes without bloodshed? If you call this authority, I don't think my people mind that. They want it. The Shah of Iran The Islamic government, like the government of Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib, has no dictatorship within it. It is a government that's based on justice. It is a government whose own life is lived at a lower level than how the peasants live. Ayatollah Khomeini In September 1978, protests against the Shah reached a new intensity. The Shah declared martial law, and when demonstrators refused to disperse, he ordered his troops to open fire. Khomeini, the flight from Paris to Tehran, marked the end of 15 years in exile. For the people of Iran, the arrival of his jetliner signaled the beginning of even more radical social and political changes than have already taken place. Khomeini, almost unknown outside of Iran just a few months ago, returned a hero, the man who from long distance had led the revolution to topple the Shah. Inside the airport terminal, Khomeini was greeted by scores of Muslim religious leaders and political allies. All this must be part of God's will. Do we know if it's God's will, maybe, for you to return to Iran or not? This I can't say. This I have never questioned. And I have always accepted it for better words, but this is the story of my life. The 
government of Iran must recognize the gravity of the situation which it has itself created and the grave consequences which will result if harm comes to any of the hostages. Introduction The Iranian Revolution of 1979 was one of the most important events of the 20th century. The revolution has forever changed the Middle East and how the world approaches political Islam. The revolution has directly impacted global alliances, the global economy, and the political balance of power in the Middle East. And it has indirectly created various conflicts, ruined several political careers, and destroyed a handful of nations. Whether you are Muslim or non-Muslim, Sunni or Shiite, capitalist or socialist, you have been affected by the Iranian Revolution. In this story, we will look at the lives of the two main players of the Iranian Revolution, the Shah of Iran and Ayatollah Khomeini. How was the Shah, wealthy, intelligent, and commander-in-chief of the region's most powerful army, forced off his throne? And how did Ayatollah Khomeini, an obscure Shiite Islamic jurist living in exile for over a decade, rise to power and topple the Shah? How did Iran, one of the United States' closest allies in the Middle East, become one of its bitterest enemies. The story begins over 100 years ago in Persia. The Rise of the Pahlavi Dynasty In 1906, Persia was ruled by the Qajar Dynasty. In the late 1700s, the Qajars had brutally united most of what we now know of as Iran. But by 1906, the Qajars were weak and nearly broke. Muzaffaruddin, the Shah of Persia, had wasted much of his nation's wealth. Britain and Russia controlled most of the country. Persia's intellectual, religious, and merchant classes wanted a parliamentary system that would represent all members of society. They eventually prevailed and forced Muzaffaruddin to sign a new constitution turning the monarchy into a figurehead. The Shah could reign, but he could not rule. The next Shah of Persia did not like this setup and abolished the 1906 constitution his father had signed. Civil war broke out and the Shah was forced into exile in 1909. The fighting continued with his son Ahmed Shah Qajar and got worse when World War I broke out in 1914. During this war, Persia was invaded by Britain, Russia, and the Ottoman Empire. Finally, in 1921, Brigadier General Riza Pahlavi of the Persian Cossack Brigade overthrew the Shah and established a republican government. The Shah was allowed to remain on the throne, but General Riza Pahlavi was the one in charge. He got the Brits and Soviets out of Iran and brought a level of stability back to the country. In 1923, Parliament appointed him Prime Minister. In 1925, Parliament abolished the Qajar dynasty. And in 1926, Parliament named Riza Pahlavi the new Shah of Persia, thereby establishing the Pahlavi dynasty. 
Shah Riza Pahlavi. Like the kings before him, Shah Riza Pahlavi wanted to both reign and rule. Riza Pahlavi was a stern-looking man with sharp eyes and an English mustache. A career military officer, he made up for his lack of education with a forceful will and strong personality. He abolished the 1906 constitution. He imprisoned and exiled his political enemies. He closed Islamic schools and outlawed the hijab. And then, in 1935, he changed the name of the country from Persia to Iran. The word Persia comes from the Greek word Persis, which referred to a region of the country called Fars. Eventually, outsiders took to calling the entire country either Persia or Fars. But within the nation, most people had always called it Iran, meaning land of the Aryans. The Aryans were a race of people that originated in Eurasia. Over time, their descendants would spread to Persia, India, the Caucasus, and parts of Russia and Germany. The Nazis of Germany misappropriated the term because Hitler believed Aryans originated in the Nordic regions of Europe. White supremacist groups would later adopt this same idea. One of the few men brave enough to stand up to Shah Riza Pahlavi was a politician named Mohammed Mossadegh. At one point, Shah Riza Pahlavi wanted to execute Mossadegh. However, Crown Prince Mohammed Riza Pahlavi convinced his father to spare the old man's life. The Crown Prince had no idea of the conflicts he'd have with Mossadegh in later years. But Iran's biggest problems came from outside the country, particularly Britain and Russia. Shah Riza Pahlavi trusted neither of them. They had interfered with Persian affairs for decades and were taking most of Iran's newfound oil resources. To weaken Soviet influence over Iran, the Shah abolished an earlier treaty giving the Soviet Union the right to invade Iran if they felt threatened by another nation. And to weaken British influence, he cancelled an agreement giving Britain sole right of oil exploration in Iran. His attempts to weaken Britain had mixed results. The British simply reworded their agreement and established the Anglo-Persian Oil Company. Today, this company is known as BP. This new agreement still gave the British almost complete control over Iran's oil, with Iran receiving merely 10% of the profits. To counterbalance these two empires, the Shah established relations with a new rising power. He became close friends with Germany's leader, Adolf Hitler. It should be noted that Shah Riza Pahlavi was not anti-Semitic. In fact, he was very accommodating to Iran's Jewish community. His friendship with Hitler became a liability when World War II started. The UK was afraid Germany would invade Iran and take over its oil fields and refineries. The Soviet Union, which shared a border with Iran, also feared a German invasion. And the Shah's declaration of neutrality did nothing to minimize these fears. The UK and the Soviet Union invaded Iran in August 1941. Even though Shah Riza Pahlavi had invested in his military, he did not stand a chance against these two stronger empires. The British launched a naval invasion from the Persian Gulf while British land forces from Baghdad pushed east into central Iran. 
The Soviets invaded from Turkmenistan into northeastern Iran while simultaneously attacking northwest Iran through Azerbaijan. In a short period of time, Iran's air force was destroyed, its military was in shambles, and it had lost access to all of its oil fields. Shari Zapalavi knew he could not win. With Tehran almost completely surrounded, the Shah capitulated and opened negotiations with the Allies. And now the march towards Tehran as the Russians move down from the north and the British sweep up from the south to cement the strategic line across Iran. Great advantages to Russia and Britain are brought about by the establishment of wartime control over that part of Iran situated between Iraq, Turkey, Soviet Transcaucasia and the Caspian Sea. All credit to the troops from India who played such a conspicuous part in this strategic victory. The Shah was willing to give in to all of the Allies' demands except one. They wanted him to arrest and turn over all German citizens currently in Iran. While there were many German government officials in Iran, there were also many women and children among them. If he handed them over to the Allies, they would be imprisoned or worse. The Shah's refusal angered the Soviets who then invaded Tehran. The Shah fled south towards Isfahan, but he was captured by the British, forced to abdicate, and sent to South Africa to spend the rest of his life in exile. And that's where he died in 1944. Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, The Early Years Crown Prince Mohammad Reza Pahlavi became Shah of Iran on September 16, 1941, at the age of 22. He inherited a nation in chaos and under occupation. The Soviets occupied the northern region of Iran from Azerbaijan, across the Caspian Sea, and up to its border with Afghanistan. They also established the Two-Day Party, an Iranian Communist Party to act as Soviet clients. The British occupied the southwest region of Iran along its border with Iraq, down the Persian Gulf Coast, up to the Gulf of Oman. Even after British troops left, the Anglo-Iranian oil company continued to rule this region like a colony. Iran remained occupied until the war ended three years later. The Allies promised to leave within six months of the war's end, but they still retained nearly complete control over Iran. The British and Soviets even briefly contemplated removing the Shah and reinstating the Qajar family. Soviet leader Joseph Stalin refused to honor his agreement to leave within six months of the end of the war. His troops remained in Azerbaijan until 1946 when strong pressure from U.S. President Harry Truman convinced him to leave. This show of force from the United States will leave a lasting impression on the young Shah, so long as he stood against the Soviet Union, the U.S. would always look out for him. As World War II wound down, the young Shah found himself a pawn in this new world controlled by the Americans, Soviets, and to a lesser extent the British. He was little more than a figurehead and surrounded by advisors approved by the Allied powers. The young Shah did not have any of his father's stern features. 
Though they shared the same dark eyebrows, the young Shah's eyes turned down at the corners, giving him a sad look. With his hair receding at the temples, he often looked as if he wasn't quite sure of himself. He was often pictured fully decked out in military dress with gold braids, sashes, and an assortment of military ribbons and badges. But in most public appearances, he preferred to wear tailored designer suits. Iran was also beset by other problems, including rampant poverty and political unrest. There were communist organizations supported by the Soviets and Shiite Islamic groups who wanted to establish an Islamic government. None of these groups were fond of the Shah. This turmoil led to several attacks, including an attempt on the Shah's life in 1949 and a successful assassination of the prime minister in 1951. The 1953 Coup d'etat Mohammad Mossadegh returned to politics in 1951 to replace the assassinated prime minister. He was now 69 years old. With his long face and nose, he resembled an elderly version of the food critic from Ratatouille. Up to now, there had been a rising clamor in Iran to take back control of their oil fields. Mossadegh was a staunch supporter of this policy which made him popular with the masses. The Shah remembered the trouble Mossadegh had caused his father and did not fully trust the old man. For one thing, the Shah was intimidated by Mossadegh's popularity. And just like he did with the previous Shah, Mossadegh tried to limit this Shah's power also. The Shah publicly acknowledged his support of oil nationalization but wanted it to be a gradual process. Mossadegh felt the British had taken enough of Iran's wealth and quickly passed a bill nationalizing the oil. The bill sent shockwaves through the Western world. The UK was infuriated by Mossadegh's decision. They threatened military and legal action against Iran. Then they imposed a naval blockade on Iranian oil exports. For the UK, the Anglo-Iranian oil company was their biggest financial resource. Still rebuilding from the ravages of the war, the UK got a huge portion of its national income from Iran's oil. Furthermore, almost the entire British Navy relied on Iranian oil. As soon as Mossadegh's bill passed, Britain was threatened with almost immediate bankruptcy. The United States under President Harry Truman also disapproved of Mossadegh's decision. But Truman was more concerned that this was another third world nation rejecting the West and moving towards the Soviets. The British tried to play on American fears of communism, hoping to prompt a joint invasion of Iran. But President Truman was having none of that. He saw through the British claims and pursued a diplomatic resolution. But things changed when Dwight Eisenhower became president in 1953. By this time, the United States was in the middle of the McCarthy era, a period of heightened anti-communist rhetoric. Eisenhower was afraid that if Iran nationalized their natural resources, other third world nations might do the same. Eisenhower did not care about Britain's financial problems. He just wanted to stop the spread of communism. China was communist. North Korea was communist. Most of Eastern Europe was communist. 
The communist Viet Minh were gaining ground in French Indochina. There were even communist rumblings in Cuba right in America's own backyard. Things weren't great in the Middle East either. Angered by their loss in the Arab-Israeli War of 1948, a group of Egyptian army officers overthrew their monarchy. The Free Officers Movement, as it was called, which included future Egyptian presidents Mohammed Najib, Gamal Abdel Nasser, and Anwar Sadat, forced King Fouad to abdicate and flee to Italy in July 1952. Even though the Egyptians weren't communists, they had socialist ideas and diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union. The United States would not let communism take hold in Iran. Eisenhower's Secretary of State, John Forster Dulles, authorized his brother, CIA Director Alan Dulles, to overthrow Prime Minister Mohammed Mossadegh. The CIA plot to overthrow Mossadegh was called Operation Ajax and had a budget of $1 million. Their plan was to stir unrest and chaos in Iran, allowing the Shah to enact martial law and take over the government. With the Shah's cooperation, the CIA swung into action. They planted articles and cartoons critical of Mossadegh in Iranian newspapers. They paid off Iranian politicians, religious scholars, and military officials. They even organized protests against Mossadegh. The CIA plan was off to a strong start. The Iranian economy was already suffering from the British blockade, so it wasn't that difficult to sow further discontent. All they needed was for the Shah to sign a decree dismissing the prime minister. But the Shah was reluctant to do so. While he did not like Mohammed Mossadegh, he did not want to overthrow his own government either. While the CIA pressured the Shah to dismiss Mossadegh, Mossadegh started to get suspicious. Somehow, he found out there was a plot to get rid of him. He quickly dismissed Parliament, then held a referendum in which he won almost 100% of the vote. However, this plan backfired against the Prime Minister. Rather than convince the Shah of Mossadegh's legitimacy, it just heightened his own suspicions. The results were so high, the Shah felt sure Mohammed Mossadegh had them rigged. To the Shah, this was further evidence that Mossadegh was just trying to grab more power and get him off the throne. The Shah finally signed the decree dismissing Mossadegh as prime minister. But things did not go as planned for the CIA and the Shah. The Shah ordered his soldiers to arrest Mossadegh's supporters, but many of them eluded capture. One of them was an army general who ordered his troops to arrest the Shah's troops. Spooked by the sudden turn of events, the Shah fled the country, flying first to Baghdad and then to Italy. By the next day, Mossadegh was still free and still in power. Tehran radio was announcing the failed coup, and newspapers were saying the Pahlavi dynasty was over. Throughout the capital, mobs gathered in the streets and pulled down statues of the Shah's father, Riza Pahlavi. Back at CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, the coup was considered a failure, but the local CIA offices in Tehran thought they could still salvage the situation. Many of the newspapers had yet to print the Shah's decree dismissing the prime minister. 
and there were many people angry at him for dissolving parliament. There were also several military officers who still supported the Shah. And then Mossadegh dropped the ball. Thinking the worst was over, he dismissed his troops from the capital and prepared to move forward without the Shah. CIA agent provocateurs began inciting mobs to stage protests against the prime minister. They paid hundreds of protesters $26 each to riot against Mossadegh. The mobs destroyed the offices of a pro-Mossadegh newspaper. Then they captured Tehran's main telegraph office, the police headquarters, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Finally, the mobs captured the radio station and began broadcasting the Shah's decree dismissing Mossadegh. And just like that, it was over for Mossadegh. A pro-Shah colonel parked a tank right outside Parliament. With his supporters in the military now too far away to assist him, Mossadegh was arrested. The Shah returned from exile to cheering crowds, but his reputation would forever be tarnished. His opponents would always see him as an American puppet. Mossadegh would spend the next three years in prison and then remain under house arrest until his death in 1967. The British never regained control of Iran's oil fields. The United States invited American oil companies to create a cooperative to manage Iran's oil production. The CIA was pleasantly surprised by the success of the Iranian coup. They now had a new weapon in their fight against communism. The CIA would use this experience to begin working on many other plots around the globe. It's actually been an open secret for decades, but for the first time now, the CIA has released documents that show its role in the 1953 coup. That is the coup that toppled Iran's democratically elected prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, had moved to nationalize oil production in Iran. Well, the U.S. was concerned at the time that that would mean a victory for the Soviets in the Cold War. So shortly after his election, the CIA began to plan his overthrow, teaming up with Britain's MI6. The United States and Iran The United States did not end its involvement in Iranian affairs with the coup. Iran essentially became an American client state. Iran's Department of Press and Propaganda was run out of the American embassy. The United States helped establish Savak Iran secret police. And at U.S. urging, Iran joined the Baghdad Pact in 1955. The Baghdad Pact was an agreement between various Middle Eastern nations and Britain to act as a shield against Soviet influence. By joining, Iran was demonstrating that it was fully aligned with the West against the Soviet Union. But other massive events were taking place in the Middle East that the United States and Britain could not control. Like Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser wanted to nationalize his nation's resources. And Egypt's most valuable resource, the Suez Canal, was controlled by the British. When Abdel Nasser nationalized the canal, a coalition of British, French, and Israeli troops invaded Egypt. Fearing Soviet intervention, the United States brokered a truce resulting in the withdrawal of foreign troops. This was seen as an Egyptian victory and a blow to Britain's prestige. Just like King Fuad in Egypt, 
King Faisal in Iraq was also a puppet king installed by British overlords. The Iraqi military admired the Egyptian Free Officers Movement and believed in Gamal Abdel Nasser's pan-Arab nationalism. Iraq's military commanders were furious at their king for supporting the British during the Suez Crisis. 21 months later, the Iraqi Free Officers Movement toppled their king. Unfortunately, the deposed Iraqi king and his family were not sent into exile like the former king of Egypt. Instead, they were marched into the palace courtyard and machine-gunned to death. Within less than a decade, two pro-Western Arab monarchs were toppled by nationalist movements. And in both instances, the new governments adopted socialist principles and strengthened their ties with the Soviet Union. Meanwhile, the Soviets were beaming Persian-language radio broadcasts into Iran. The Communist Two-Day Party was actively building support in Tehran, and the Shah was weak and did not really have any authority. The Shah and the United States understood the mutual benefits of an alliance. The United States wanted a strong, pro-Western nation in the region to keep the Soviets in check. And the Shah wanted a strong military to defend his nation and keep the Soviets in check. Thus began the long and complicated military-slash-financial-slash-political relationship between the United States and the Shah of Iran. A Benevolent Dictator Sazimanut Tila'at Wakashvar, or the Organization of Intelligence and National Security, was better known by its Persian acronym, SAVAK. SAVAK was jointly founded in 1953 by the CIA and Israel's Mossad to hunt down and neutralize Iran's security threats. In fact, one of SAVAK's original trainers was Major General Herbert Norman Schwarzkopf. His son, General Norman Schwarzkopf, would lead coalition forces against Iraq in Operation Desert Storm decades later. The first leader of Savak was Nematullah Nasiri, a close friend of the Shah. Nematullah Nasiri was a key figure in the 1953 coup against Mossadegh and had grown rich by investing in lucrative real estate deals. Savak operated outside the law. They had their own prisons with broad authority to do almost whatever they wished. Anyone who dared criticize the Shah too much might find himself arrested, imprisoned, and tortured. Savak's primary goal was to make sure nothing threatened the Shah's rule. In doing so, Savak infiltrated every corner of Iranian life. They monitored the National Front, Mohammad Mossadegh's party and the Shah's strongest political opposition. They monitored ethnic minorities such as Kurds, Arabs, and Turks. They monitored artists, religious figures, businessmen, politicians, journalists, lawyers, academics, and students. They knew which politicians were taking bribes and which ones were cheating on their wives. And when the Shah wanted to cheat on his wife, Savak provided security and kept his secrets. Most Iranians hated Savak. They never knew when a casual statement might land them in a Savak prison. Savak tortured captives with electrical shocks, beatings, and the pulling of teeth and nails. Years later, the Shah would swear that he knew nothing of Savak's activities. But there are others who believe he did. The United States initially began training Savak 
But approximately 1956, 1957, um, it was clear that SAVAK was going in a direction that did not necessarily fit with American values. The Shah wasn't oblivious at all to what was going on. He gave them full permission to do it. In addition, the Americans themselves were not oblivious to it. After the 1953 coup, the Shah, now 34 years old, was ready to take on more of a role in the direction of his country. But if he thought his new prime minister would allow him to rule as well as to reign, he was mistaken. Prime Minister Fazlullah Zahedi was just as determined to limit the Shah's power as Mossadegh had been. To remedy this situation, the Shah sacked Zahedi and reassigned him as UN ambassador. Zahedi would spend the rest of his life in virtual exile in Geneva, Switzerland. What followed was a string of weak and ineffectual prime ministers. After Prime Minister Zahedi left, there was Hossein Allah in 1955. In 1957, Hossein Ala was forced to resign when Iranian bandits killed two Americans. Next was Manoche Ekbal, but three years later he was gone amid accusations of election rigging. The next prime minister was Sharif Imami. Less than a year later, anti-government protests forced him to resign. Then came Ali Amini in 1961. The Shah did not like how cozy he was with the U.S. government and he was gone by 1962. Finally, in 1962, the Shah had a prime minister he could work with. Prime Minister Asadullah Alam was willing to give the Shah the authority he desired. And he was also willing to help the Shah implement his bold new plan to bring Iran into the 20th century. The White Revolution It was called a white revolution to differentiate it from a red or bloody revolution. In January 1963, the Shah submitted his proposal for the White Revolution to a national referendum. It was approved by a resounding 99% of the electorate. Despite boycotts from the religious community and accusations of vote rigging, the Shah took this as a huge victory. The White Revolution was probably more important to the United States than it was to the average Iranian. It is unlikely most Iranian peasants fully understood the goals of the White Revolution. It alienated the monarchy from its traditional constituency, which was um, the landowners, the clergy, um, the army, um, conservative elements of society. But it pleased the Americans, uh, and it, it fed into this whole idea of modernization that was so central to American foreign policy um, at that time in the Cold War. The most important goal of the White Revolution, the one the Shah was most proud of, was land reform. Before 1963, Iran was essentially a feudal nation. Wealthy landlords owned huge tracts of land that peasants worked as sharecroppers. Some of these landlords owned entire villages. 
The White Revolution proposed to buy these plots from the landlords, break them up, and sell them back to the peasants at 30% below market value. The government loans for the land would be paid back over a 25-year period at low interest rates. Another important part of the White Revolution was proposed reforms to women's rights. Women would receive the right to vote, the legal marriage age would increase to 18 years, and divorce and child custody laws would be altered to reflect modern values. There were several other points in the White Revolution, but these two were the most controversial. Landowners did not like the idea of selling off parts of their land holdings, and the religious establishment did not like the introduction of Western customs into Iran. And one of the most vocal opponents of the Shah and his White Revolution was an obscure Shiite religious scholar working in Qom. Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini Sayyid Ruhollah Musawi Khomeini was born in 1902 in the village of Khomein, about 160 miles southwest of Tehran. He was born into a religious family, and both his father and grandfather were Shiite religious scholars. He began his religious studies in the nearby town of Iraq before moving to Qom, about 70 miles southwest of Tehran. Qom was a unique Iranian city. It was the religious capital of Iran and the burial place for Fatima bint Musa, the sister of Imam Ridha, the eighth Shiite imam. In Qom, classical Arabic was spoken just as frequently as Farsi. There were no bars, no movies, and no alcohol. Women wore the black shadors whenever in public. Elderly Iranians traveled to Qom hoping to die and be buried there. Ruhullah Khomeini studied at the famous Darul Shafa College in Qom where he wrote various theological essays that were well accepted. His devotion to Islamic studies allowed Ruhullah Khomeini to move up the Shiite religious hierarchy. There are several levels to this hierarchy. First, there is the Talibul Ilm, meaning student of knowledge. This is a beginner student. Next is the Mubalighur Risala, or carrier of the message. Then there is the Mujtahid, which means diligent. This is equivalent to a Catholic priest, and most people end their studies there. For those that go beyond Mujtahid, the next level is Hujjatul Islam, meaning authority of Islam. This is conferred on someone who has studied for many years. Few individuals get to the next level known as Ayatollah or sign of God. An Ayatollah can deduce and infer Islamic law. Ayatollah al-Uthma or Grand Ayatollah is an Ayatollah who has published a treatise on Islamic law. And at the top of the pyramid is the Marja which means the source. There are very few marajya at any given time, usually fluctuating between three and five in the entire world. A marajya is neither elected nor selected. A marajya is known by his popularity and influence. Khomeini was a student at Qom when the elder Shah Riza Pahlavi began de-emphasizing Islam in Iran. Khomeini did not like the way that Shah tried to force Western culture on Muslims. He saw the current Shah's so-called white revolution as much of the same. 
By the time the Shah began implementing his white revolution in 1963, Khomeini had earned the title of Ayatollah. At 61 years of age, Ayatollah Khomeini's full beard was almost completely white. His dark eyes peered out from beneath bushy eyebrows. He rarely smiled in public and seemed to have a permanent scowl on his face. His dress was almost always the same. The black turban of the Sayyid, or descendant of Prophet Muhammad, pushed back on his head. A flowing black robe over a white or gray thobe with simple slippers. Ayatollah Ruhullah Khomeini began denouncing the White Revolution in March 1963. Though Ayatollah Khomeini was not yet a marja, he had earned a level of respect and authority in Qom. Hearing an Ayatollah speak out against the government like this was very rare. Most religious scholars in Iran preferred to remain aloof from the dirty business of politics. But Khomeini came from a different school of thought that encouraged mixing politics and religion. He believed political change began with religious devotion. On June 3, 1963, Ayatollah Khomeini delivered a speech outside the Fezia Madrasa in Qom, criticizing the Shah and his white revolution. This speech coincided with the Shiite celebration of Ashura commemorating the death of the Prophet's grandson, Hussein ibn Ali. In this speech, Ayatollah Khomeini accused the Shah of violating his oath to protect Iran and the Shiite faith. He said the White Revolution was just the Shah's attempt to force Western customs on Iranians while accumulating more power and wealth. He compared the Shah to the Umayyad Caliph Yazid ibn Muawiyah who was responsible for Hussein ibn Ali's death. He warned the Shah that he would wind up just like his father if he did not change his ways. Khomeini's talk electrified the devout inhabitants of Qom. Massive demonstrations broke out all over the city. Two days after the speech, Prime Minister Asadullah Alam had the Ayatollah arrested. When news got out, the demonstrations turned violent and spread far beyond Qom. Riots broke out in Tehran, Shiraz, Mashhad, and Isfahan. It took security forces three days using live ammunition to finally suppress the riots. At the end of it all, over 400 people were killed. Ayatollah Khomeini remained in prison throughout the year until the following April. When he was finally released, he was placed under house arrest. But prison and house arrest did nothing to mollify Khomeini. Within the space of a year, he had gone from an unknown religious scholar in Qom to a national figure. The final straw came in October 1964 when Khomeini once again criticized American influence over Iran. This time, it was to denounce the new capitulation agreement which gave all U.S. officials full immunity for any act committed in Iran. This time, the Ayatollah was arrested and sent into exile. He stayed in Turkey for a short while before settling in Najaf, Iraq, about 127 miles from the Iranian border. Even though Khomeini was cut off from his base in Iran, he was by no means silenced. Najaf was the burial place for Ali ibn Abi Talib and one of Shiaism's most important cities. Shiite pilgrims to Najaf would often stop by Khomeini's home and listen to him lecture. 
His lectures were recorded on a fascinating new technology called cassette tapes that were then smuggled back into Iran. These little cassette tapes were then secretly copied and dispersed throughout the country. Some of Khomeini's students also took copies of these tapes with them on pilgrimage to Mecca. There, they would share them with other Shiite pilgrims who would carry them back to their respective homes. This helped to build an international following for the Ayatollah. In fact, Khomeini's influence grew to the point many began to consider him a marja. Coronation and Celebration By 1967, the Shah was an absolute monarch. Savak kept all political dissent at bay. Anyone caught criticizing the Shah would quickly find themselves under investigation and even arrested. Khomeini was exiled in Iraq. Even though his illegal tapes circulated throughout Iran, most of Iran's religious establishment had returned to their apolitical behavior. His new prime minister, Amir Abbas Hoveida, would turn out to be Iran's longest-serving prime minister, and it was easy to see why. Hoveida was a close friend of the Shah. They shared a love of wine, political philosophy, and French culture. Hoveda was a Freemason, an alcoholic, and rumored to be an atheist and homosexual. But the Shah trusted Hoveda and depended on him to help implement his policies. The Shah made the decisions and Hoveda carried them out. Hoveda did the dirty things the Shah did not want to be connected to. Hoveda also kept bad news away from the Shah. He even forbade Iran's newspapers from reporting on Tehran's horrible traffic. And now, the Shah felt he was ready to fully step into his role. He decided to celebrate his successes with a magnificent coronation. Day of coronation for the Shah was here. In brilliant sunshine, guests waited in the gardens of the Palace of the Garden of Roses. After 26 years of steering his country from what he described as a nation of beggars into a thriving and prosperous realm, the Shah was ascending the fabled peacock throne to crown himself King of Kings. The Shah's 1967 coronation was attended by huge crowds, including foreign dignitaries and Iran's elite. The Shah and his young queen rode in a gold coach and wore crowns covered in diamonds, rubies, and emeralds. Queen Faradiba wore a 26-foot train with emeralds sewn in. The peacock throne upon which the Shah sat was studded with over 25,000 gemstones and had pillows made of spun gold. The coronation included a three-hour military parade and a performance at Tehran's new opera hall, and it was all broadcast to millions via satellite. But the Shah was not done yet. Four years later, in 1971, he decided another grand celebration was due this time to celebrate 2,500 years of Persian Empire. As opulent as his coronation was, this celebration was even more so. It took place in Persepolis in southwest Iran. This was where the Persian Emperor Darius once ruled. Catering was provided by Maxims of Hong Kong. A tent city was designed by luxury French design house Maison Johnson and French fashion designer La Vie provided the costumes and uniforms. All told, this celebration of the Persian Empire cost over $100 million. 
Such displays of wealth and splendor boosted the Shah's confidence, which allowed him to ignore several realities. And Prime Minister Hoveda enabled this ignorance. The Shah never knew how out of touch he was with his people. He thought his people loved him. So the Shah did not know the failures of the White Revolution. Even though women did get the right to vote, the Shah still had to approve all political candidates. Hence, true political freedom was never realized. The land reforms, which were meant to boost the Shah's popularity with the peasant class, actually had unintended consequences. Most of Iran's millions of peasants did not get any land. There just wasn't enough good land to go around. Many peasants who did receive land could no longer depend on their landlords for support. And since not all peasants were good land managers, many were forced to move to the cities to find work. Even those peasants who were successful with their lands did not benefit the Shah all that much. A peasant who moved up to the middle class was now able to educate his children. Those same children usually did not want to work the land like their parents and often moved to the cities also. The Shah was ignorant of other problems in his country. He either ignored or was ignorant of the rampant corruption in government. The Shah, who always wanted the latest and most sophisticated weaponry, spent billions on American armaments. His generals received generous kickbacks from American defense contractors. One example was Brigadier General Mohammed Amir Khatami. General Khatami was the commander of Iran's Air Force and married to the Shah's half-sister. When he died in a hang gliding accident in 1975, the subsequent investigation turned up over $100 million in kickbacks. The Shah ignored the criticisms of the religious establishment. While he was not an atheist, the Shah was not very religious either. He drank alcohol, did not fast during Ramadan, and cheated on his wife. He wanted to separate religion from politics and called Iran's religious scholars dogs and snakes. The Shah also ignored the plight of his political opponents. The Communist Two-Day Party had been outlawed and the opposition National Front Party had been decimated by Savak. With no legal means to express their views, many of them went underground and began collaborating together. But most importantly, the Shah ignored the growing influence of Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini. All right, alhamdulillah, I hope you found that interesting, informative, entertaining, and hopefully a bit suspense, suspenseful. It gets, uh, it gets real in the next episode, I'll tell you that. It's, uh, the next episode is almost done. It's, uh, I've already rolled out the script, already did all the research, just got to do some editing and recording, so I'm hopeful I'll have that to you in a few weeks, hopefully no more than one or two weeks. And I know people tell me not to apologize for taking so long, but I really do feel guilty about taking two or three months to push out one episode that goes for 40 minutes. Um, I apologize for that. Hopefully things will get better soon, inshallah. Anyway, this was one of the most difficult things to research. Of all the 
episodes and stories I've done, this was one of the most difficult. Now, I had to spend, like I said, much of the past two months doing research, and I still don't think I've done this episode or this event, the Islamic Revolution in Iran of 1979. I don't think I truly did it justice. There's just so much information. I couldn't even, I couldn't, obviously I couldn't fit into one episode. I, it was hard for me even to fit it all into two episodes. I know there's a lot that I just had to leave out. But what's very difficult about doing the research for this episode was that really it's very difficult to find unbiased information. Everything, I won't say everything, but much of what I found was either pro-Shah and anti-Khomeini or it was propaganda from the Iranian government, the current Iranian government, which painted the Shah as this evil person and was completely pro-Khomeini. So it was really difficult to find unbiased information. And a lot of the time I had to just read the two different sides and kind of try to go down the middle. So before we go too much further, let me just first... (laughs) Put some put a disclaimer out there. First of all, I am generally anti-revolution. Okay, as a rule, I'm against people overthrowing their government. You know, I've as a student of history and read, doing all these podcasts and all the research I do, most revolutions, violent or otherwise, usually go bad. And the Arab Spring is an example of that. I mean, there are exceptions. There are times when a revolution is truly justified. But in most cases, I'm not just speaking about Muslims either, I'm speaking about all people. In most cases, I don't think it's a good idea for people to rise up against their government. Now, when it comes to the Iranian revolution, throughout my life, I've been exposed, like perhaps many of you also, to various different extremes. So first of all, I am an American, born and raised in the United States, and my government is pretty much anti-Iran and has been for most of my lifetime. Then as a Sunni Muslim, I often often hear a lot of uh, anti-Shiite rhetoric, which ultimately leads to anti-Iran rhetoric. But I'm also aware that there are many Muslims, even Sunni Muslims, who idolize the Iranian revolution and hope to copy it elsewhere. I just want to get something clear. My goal with this podcast is to try to share the complexity and even sometimes the beauty of Islamic history. Now, I hope that you, my listener, inshallah, will move away from this uh, Blind dichotomy of good versus evil. Sometimes it's just not that simple. You should try to take a more nuanced look at history and learn from the mistakes of our past. Now, certainly we do have Muslim heroes, but other other than Prophet Muhammad and a handful of companions, I try to stay away from portraying Muslims as purely good. Now, this this. Um, hopefully unbiased or objective objective path I try to take has led a lot of people to say things about me that just weren't true. After the episode about the two episodes about the Houthis from earlier this year, I got a lot of people writing me stating that I was supporting Saudi Arabia. Now, my intention during that podcast was to try to give a balanced account of the events that led to the Yemeni civil war. 
And I did definitely mention how Saudi Arabia was killing hundreds, maybe even thousands of people in airstrikes. But there's one thing you can't overlook. The Houthis started that whole mess by overthrowing the government. I kind of told you uh, I'm generally an anti-revolution, and this is an example why. So just because I, I'm not 100% in the Houthi corner does not mean I 100% support Saudi Arabia either. It's just I understand that it's a very com- complicated conflict and there are no purely, no pure, purely good people nor purely evil people. And that's what a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of us Muslims want to force everyone into. And not just Muslims. I think Americans do it too. Non-Muslim Americans. Everybody does it, I guess. They try to force people into these boxes of good versus evil. Look, Saudi Arabia government is not good, but neither is it evil. The Houthis are certainly not good, but neither are they evil. Life is just not that simple. History is is just not that simple. So I hope, inshallah, that you can use this information that I'm giving you to try to form your own opinions. So in this, these two episodes about the Iranian revolution, I'm neither for Khomeini nor for the Shah. For one, I don't believe Iran is part of the axis of evil, regardless of what former presidents have said. And while the Shah was an autocrat, compared to some of the other Muslim dictators we've had in that region, he wasn't nearly as brutal. He had his issues. We mentioned what Savak used to do. But on a scale of one to ten, as far as brutal dictators, he was probably of three or four. So I'm hoping, inshallah, that you can listen to this. I do try to present both the good and bad of both sides of this uh, conflict, the uh, Iranian revolution. I hope you can listen to this and inshallah, come to your own conclusions. So as I mentioned earlier, the next episode is already written. I just got to record it. Got to do a little bit of editing too, inshallah. And I'm hoping to have that within a week or two. Um, That's about it. I guess I just remind you to uh, support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber. Uh, $4 and up memberships to get you access to archived episodes as well as a series on the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Your support allows me to bring you this information. It pays for the hosting and the and the websites for the for this podcast. Also pays for the books and the research I had to do. I had to buy a couple of books to do to research this episode, uh, this series really on the Iranian revolution also allow me to purchase access to to old newspaper archives so I could read newspaper clippings of of uh, the Iranian revolution as it happened it gave me a much different view so I couldn't do this without your support so please continue to support the show if you are not currently a patreon subscriber you may want to consider uh, becoming one and you can do so by going to patreon.com slash Islamic history and if you can't afford it or if uh, you don't want to spend any money, I can understand that. MashaAllah. At the very least, share it, share the, this podcast with your friends and family, share it on social media and help other people uh, learn about this program. So there will be a short clip at the uh, end of this episode going is about the uh, conquest of Mecca. As I mentioned, we are currently doing the uh, life of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And uh, just uh, I think a week or so before this 
episode was released. I released the episode on the conquest of Mecca, and I'm going to let you listen to a short clip of that. Show notes for this episode, which will include a list of my sources for this uh, for this series on the Iranian Revolution, will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Iran1, I-R-I-R-A-N, and the number one. So until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. And so now we get to the actual conquest of Mecca. And this took place in Ramadan, the ninth month of the year, 8AH. So, let's begin by reminding everyone that the Prophet ﷺ did not hate Mecca. He didn't hate the city of Mecca. In fact, he loved it. It was his homeland. And the only reason he had left was he had left was because the people there had made him leave through the persecution that the Muslims were suffering when they were in Mecca before the Hijrah or the migration to Medina. So with that being said, let's get into the details of the actual conquest. By this time, almost two years had passed since the signing of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, and Islam had spread really far, it had spread across most of Western Arabia, and the Prophet now had the power to invade Mecca if he really wanted to. However, he had to abide by the treaty. The Treaty of Hudaybiyah is stipulated once again that Muslims and the Quraysh couldn't attack each other. But this also included their allies. Their allies who were associated with the Muslims, and those allies or allied tribes who were associated with the Quraysh, they couldn't attack each other. Now, as part of it all, as it, as it turned out, two tribes, two smaller clans connected to these two larger powers, they had a long-standing quarrel with each other. These were the tribes of Banu Bakr and Banu Khuza'a. Banu Bakr was allied with the Quraysh and Banu Khuza'a was allied with the Muslims. The disagreement between these two tribes, Khuza'a and Bakr, it started long before this period of time. It actually goes back to the time before Islam was coming to Arabia, before the Prophet ﷺ began preaching the message of Islam. And the origins of this animosity or this quarrel between these two tribes, this is a classic case of the tit-for-tat pre-Islamic tribal feuding that these Arab tribes would go through over and over and over again. Started off with this. Banu Khuza'a, the tribe that was allied with the Muslims, but once again, this these events took place before Islam. Banu Khuza'a killed a man who was under the protection of Banu Bakr. Banu Bakr retaliated by killing a man from Banu Khuza'a. The Khuza'a, they in turn, killed three noblemen from Bani Bakr, and they killed them near Arafah, which was just outside the sacred precincts of Mecca. And so that's how things remained for the next several years. Both tribes basically tried to steer clear of each other, knowing that they could be killed if they wandered into the wrong territory. And also, Islam came, and the conflict between the Muslims and the Quraysh kind of drew everyone's attention. And so, 
uh, they weren't really able to really fight it out during this period of time. But then the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was signed, and so now the two clans, they chose their side. And Bani Bakr, they went along with the Quraysh, and Bani Khuza'a went along with uh, the Prophet And so now, Banu Khuza'a, who was now an ally of the Muslims, they now felt it was safe to venture further away from Medina and uh, into land or territory controlled by Bani Bakr. And Bani Bakr used the Treaty of Hudaybiyah as an opportunity to strike back at Banu Khuza'a. So Banu Khuza'a, um, they were watering their animals at a location that was close to Mecca when Bani Bakr attacked them. And in addition to Bani Bakr, some members of the Quraysh also assisted them either in gathering weapons and, and according to some reports, even joined into the raid it, itself. And the two members of Quraysh who were said to have participated were Suhail ibn Amr, who was the Quraysh who signed the Treaty of Hudaybiyah with Prophet Muhammad, and also Ikrimah ibn Abi Jahl, who was the son of Abu Jahl, who, of course, was one of the main enemies of the Prophet before the Hijrah. Now, in the raid, one member of Banu Khuza'a was killed. The other men, they ran into the sacred precincts of Medina for safety. And at that time, it was still Arab custom that uh, killing was forbidden within the sacred precincts of the Kaaba.